ask you to turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews. I'm reading beginning at verse 18 of chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord, that is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know what that means? That's the word Adonai. It means the God who is God of all. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. That's the oath he makes. Jesus, you are a priest forever. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Wow, what a statement. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he also lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And this is what he's like, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The word made perfect there means to, to be declared perfect forever. Now, studying the book of Hebrews is kind of like swimming underwater. I was thinking about the other day that, you know, you swim underwater, you, you have your eyes open as wide as you can get them, and you're straining, you want to see, and you're straining as hard as you can to see, but even with your eyes open, it's still pretty dim. And occasionally, you have to come up for air to, just to survive. That's a lot like studying the book of Hebrews because there's nothing entertaining about the study of the book of Hebrews. It is designed to teach us how to know God and how to reach God. It is designed to teach us how to know God and how to reach God. Now, there's nothing in ourselves that give us or provide us the ability to reach God. There is nothing in us that enables us to, to come to God, to reach God. That has to be accomplished in someone else other than us. And that someone else is Jesus. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And so the book of Hebrews is designed to teach us how Jesus gets us to God and how through Jesus man can know God. Now before we get to the text, I want you just to come up for air with me just a minute. And I want you to turn back to the 55th chapter of Isaiah. 
Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah is a, an Old Testament book, kind of in the middle of the Bible. If you find uh, Psalms and Proverbs, you can keep going to the right, and you get in the neighborhood already, and you can find it. Take a right and travel a couple of blocks, and you've got, got, got Isaiah. Now, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I don't suppose there is a verse of Scripture in the Bible that is more discouraging than that. Now, there are two contrasts in that, in that verse, those two verses of Scripture. There's the contrast between our ways and God's ways and our thoughts and God's thoughts. Now, how am I going to get to God if His ways are higher than the heavens from my ways? I mean, we're poles apart in our ways. And how am I going to know God if my thoughts are so different from God's thoughts. I mean, how do you do that? How do you know God and how do you reach God when we are at enmity with Him? How do you get there from here? That's the idea. That's the question. Well, that's what Hebrews is teaching us. Now, on your way back to the text, while you're in the neighborhood, I want you to stop off at John 17. And I want to read one verse of John 17... And we're going to get there in just a minute back to the, to the, to the Scripture. Verse 3. Now, verse 3 gives us a, an example of what is true religion. I say that word, maybe it should be true faith. What is true religion? True religion, true faith is not serving a deity. That's exactly what I was trying to say this morning in that sermon that there is, there is the apex of Christ, the Christian faith is not performing for the Lord. Getting your name in His record book, you know, of being uh, the most attender. At some, you know, you can have a chain of perfect attendance hangs all the way down to your knees, you know, never miss Sunday school. And, and, and you know, that doesn't, that's, <laughs> that's not where your worth is, lies. True religion is this. This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus, whom Thou hast sent. That's genuine faith. Genuine Christianity is knowing God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you do not know God through Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. I mean, that's just as simple as, you know, the hands on your, on your arms. Uh, true faith is knowing God... Through Jesus Christ. Now we're back at the text. How does this happen? How do we know God? How do we reach God? Man's desire, the, the example, the, the reason of all the religions of the world is man's quest to know God, man's desire to get to God. And we're poles away from Him and, and getting farther away. See, how does it happen? Here's what man, one man said. Our little minds can't conceive God, let alone contain Him. 
Even the fleeting glimpses we catch of Him as He passes by in the moments of ecstasy or pain, beauty or wonder, goodness or love, leave us tantalized by the fullness of the reality beyond. They point to heights we cannot scale. We need a mediator. It is not only that we lack the the mental equipment to conceive Him, We lack the moral integrity to approach Him. We need help, end of quote. We need a pontifex, and that's a Latin word for bridge builder. We need someone who has access from earth to heaven, someone that will help us draw near to God. And Hebrews is a book committed to that goal, to tell you how to get to God, how it's possible. Packer's got a little book, on, it's titled Knowing God. Everybody ought to have that book. It's a paperback, it's pretty inexpensive, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And in this book, he said there are four characteristics of a person who truly knows God. Let me give you these, and it's free. It's just, you know, it's one of your rabbits that some of you, are, you know, some of your teachers go after you out there occasionally. It's, a, it's a four characteristics of one who truly knows God. Those who truly know God, he, say, he says, have a great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They show great boldness in behalf of God. And they have a great contentment in God. Tremendous thought. Wish it were mine. They have great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They show great boldness in behalf of God. And they have a great contentment in God. They have peace. Now, the context of our text really is established in verse 16. And the who of verse 16, chapter 7, is of course Jesus. Now, Christ has become this high priest who is superior. And He has this high priesthood not on the basis of his uh, um, genealogy. He didn't earn this high priesthood. It wasn't something that he got as the result of his birth. It wasn't according to physical requirements, but he was made a priest superior by the indestructibility of his life. Verse 16. And, And verses 18 and 19... Show the contrast of the old and the new. He said, the old has been put away and the new uh, covenant has come to be so that a man can draw near to God. And that's what we're about tonight. Now verses 20 through 25 are a series of three contrasts. Contrasting Jesus' priesthood with the Old Testament priesthood. Now, now let me say this, you know, as, as a, uh, for, uh, for the purpose of background, that the only way the Old Testament man had, had access to God was through the priest. The Jew in the Old Testament, his access to God was through the priest. Now, what Hebrews is establishing was this, that that priesthood was inadequate and insufficient to get man to God. So it was put aside... And the new priesthood was, came to be 
And that priesthood was superior, and that priesthood indeed became access from here to there, and Jesus was the priest of that priesthood. Now, there are three contrasts. The first contrast in verse 20 is that the priesthood of Jesus was with an oath. And the writer hearkens back to the Old Testament. In this case, he, he, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. That's what he quotes in verse 21. A Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. And he's quoting the psalmist hundreds of years before. And the psalmist saw that God by his declaration, his oath, made Jesus a forever priest. And he contrasts Jesus' priesthood with the Old Testament priesthood in the sense that they did not become priests by the oath of God. How did the priest in the Old Testament become a priest? He was born into the priestly line. Under Moses, if he was born of the tribe of Levi, if he could trace his genealogy back to Aaron, he was automatically in the priestly line. And so he became a priest by birth. Jesus became a priest by the oath of God. And, and on the, and the flip side of that coin is that these priests who became priests as the result of their genealogy died and that priesthood ended but because Jesus never died, His priesthood continues forever. Now, that's, there's a superiority there in the sense that Jesus was made priest by the oath of God and never relinquished that priesthood in death because He didn't die. Second contrast. By the way, if there are three words you're going to look for in these three contrasts. In the first, the key word is oath. In the second, the key word is guarantee. And the third, the key word is permanence. Second contrast is found in verse 22. And he says this, that under, under, the, under Moses, in the Moses era, in the old agreement, the old priesthood, the priest never made... Now watch this. This is gorgeous, great stuff. He said, in the, the old priest never made anyone righteous. The Old Testament priest never made anyone righteous. All they could do was to state the standard of righteousness. That's what the priest was about. He just stated the standard of righteousness, and the guy said, well, you know, I, I, I have failed that standard. He says, okay, well, I'll bring the blood in your behalf. So that all the priest could do would be to state the standard of righteousness and bring the blood to the altar to cover their sin for a while. But he said, when Jesus came on the scene, he became the guarantee of the new agreement. Now, let me tell you what that means. It means that your salvation and mine is not guaranteed by what I do, but my salvation and yours is guaranteed by Jesus Himself. Now somebody asks you, how do you know that you're going to heaven? And you answer, Jesus is my guarantee. He is the guarantee of the new agreement. Now the new covenant that God made with man is guaranteed by Jesus, not by us. Now, I need to remind you of what a covenant was. 
Now, what you're going to say is a covenant was an agreement between two people. That's partly true. But it goes beyond that, and this is where the really where it really focuses. It was an agreement made between two people. And when one when one when party A of the agreement performed such an action, a certain action, it produced in party B a certain response. Now, a lot of us believe, some people believe, that the way a, that man's salvation is on this wise. A person acts a certain way, lives his life a certain kind of way, and the result of how he lives, God says, God responds to that and says, okay, because you have lived like this, I'll grant you eternal life. That's not the way it works. For salvation is on God's initiative and not man's. This is how the new agreement works. God says, I'll declare you righteous by your faith, and the result of my declaring you righteous will be that you will live a life of works and love. You see the difference? So that the guarantee of the new covenant is Jesus. Under the old covenant, man's access to God was, de- access to God was dependent upon a priest and man's obedience. Under the new covenant, access to God is based only upon the finished work of Christ. Now that word guarantee in the Greek is an interesting word. It's a financial term. It refers to financial security. And it refers to one who stands as a guarantor. It's used for one who guarantees a payment. It's it's used for one who stands in defense of one who doesn't have sufficient funds and says, I'll pay the price. I'll guarantee the debt. My dad did that when I was young. I needed to borrow some money and I had no collateral, no reputation, no track record, etc. My father had a good credit. He never borrowed anything on the credit. As a matter of fact, he had a tremendous reputation in the community, so he went with me to the bank. Never will forget that old man. He looked just like a bulldog. I know he had a bulldog for a pet, the banker, and he just kind of growled, you know, when I went in to uh, borrow some money, and he wanted to know what collateral I had, and I didn't even know what that word meant. You know, I never had borrowed him money, so he kind of snarled a little bit, and my father was there, and he, you know, he said, well, Mr. Brawley, he said, uh, uh, if it's all right, I'll, just, I'll go on a note with him. What he meant was that if I couldn't pay, he guaranteed the debt. He guaranteed the payment. Oh, isn't that great to know? Because you and I don't have it. I mean, we have insufficient funds to pay the debt we owe to God. And Jesus said, I'll, I'll stand good for that. He's the guarantee of the new agreement. Second, a third. A second. He is superior as a priest. Verse 23 because he is priest forever. Priest forever. Now, let me read verse 25 again. It says, Hence also he is able to save... Now, if you, if, if you just put your name right in there, it would just be great. Just write your name in there. 
And it's going to read like this. Hence also, he is able to save Gerald Tidwell, David Shirler, Jerry Gillum. He is able to save Gerald Tidwell forever who draws near to God through Jesus since what? Since Jesus always lives to make intercession for him. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's interceding. He's standing in our place. That's what the word intercession means. At the, at the throne of God, He stands for us and guarantees us before Him. All right, now there are some examples of superiority. Now, I said we're going to abbreviate this sermon. It's going to be a minute shorter than, than normal. Got in here and got, got caught up in it and got time's getting away here. There's, there are three examples of His superiority. The first example is verse 26. He is superior because he is sinless. You show me a priest and I'll show you a sinner. You show me a priest and I'll show you a sinner. Now, if you're going to put your... You're going to believe in someone else other than Jesus. You're going to put your confidence in somebody else other than Jesus. He needs to be holy. That word means undefiled, free from wickedness. He or she needs to be innocent from malice. That means he has absolutely not one tent of hatred. He or she must be undefiled. That means free from that which by nature is a thing deformed or debased. That means that they cannot have a fallen nature. And fourth, they must be separated from sinners. Now you say, well, didn't Jesus hobnob with sinners? It means that He was totally different from sinners. He was like us in every way, and yet He never had sin. And He must be exalted above the heavens. Now, if you can find somebody like that, put every ounce of your faith in them. But you and I know that Jesus is superior in His priesthood because that can only be said about Him. A few years ago, a man out in Berkeley, California, uh, offered as a course in, in Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, a, uh, a course in all of the mistakes of Jesus. And he was going to teach this class a whole semester long exposing all of the mistakes and failures and sins in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Opened the class that day, called the roll, and dismissed it for the semester. True story. Couldn't find any false mistakes or sin. Second thing, superior, superior, is that he offered up himself once for all. He didn't have to keep coming back. He didn't have to keep coming back again and again. The sacrifice that Jesus made was a sacrifice once and for all. That was all that was necessary. And the third aspect of superiority is that he's the perfect son of God. Perfect son of God. My high priest... The way I get to God is that I have a perfect son of God as my priest, my bridge builder. Now, there are two applications. The first is that in the person of Jesus Christ, He has made you perfect. Ooh. You say, wait a minute. You mean to say that you think you're perfect? I know I am. In Jesus Christ in the position 
of Jesus Christ. As a believer, so are you. I didn't say I act perfectly. I didn't say I didn't sin. But when God placed me in His Son, in Jesus Christ, positionally, positionally, I, am, I have the righteousness of Christ. Now, in Jesus Christ, you have been made perfect. Now, become what you are. Now, become what you are. Some of us in, enjoy exposing how bad a sinner we are, and we say, you're a terrible sinner, now do better. Jesus says, you're, you have my righteousness, you have, you're, you're placed in my perfection, now you live out, in reality, your position. You become, in, experientially, in life, what you are in me. That's the whole challenge and goal of the Christian life, is just to, uh, to become what we are. Second application... There is no chair in heaven. No, no, back that up. There is a chair in, up there in heaven. He's sitting in it. Now, in the tabernacle, there was no chair. You don't find a chair in the tabernacle. Why? Because the priest's work was never finished. He never sat down. That's significant when it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. There is a chair in heaven, and Jesus is sitting in it. You know what that means? It means you can rest in Him. Because your salvation is not dependent upon you keeping on or holding out or keeping up something. You just rest in Him who is the guarantee, who guarantees you before God. What, it, what, 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 what the glorious word is, is that tonight God guarantees me as righteous before the Father. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have free access to you. And we can get to know you because in Jesus Christ we have the freedom to come right into your presence, to be in your presence, to be your own. God, help us to be what we are, to become what you've made us. In Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Now, I'd like to give us an, give an invitation, give an opportunity for people tonight to be saved. You know, there'd be a, this would be a great opportunity for us to be saved because, man, that's what this message is, a salvation message. And man's hope, man's way to God is through Jesus. Have you trusted? Have you ever given your heart and life to Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus and Jesus alone? Have you, are you trying to make it there some other way? Jesus plus this, or Jesus plus that. Maybe tonight you need to join the church because God's leading you to place your life here. Or just to rededicate your life, to walk closer to God. Make some new promises before God and before His witnesses. We won't stay long, so if God is calling you, you come on the first word. First word while we stand.